You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church Midtown. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman, and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Ms. Keisha. Well, peace be with you. Hey, what a joy it is to be with you all this morning um, and to have the privilege of opening up the Word of God. As some of you know, we've been in a series called Sacred, traveling through the first three chapters of uh, Genesis for uh, the last several weeks. And we want to continue in that series today by looking at uh, kind of part two of last week's sermon as we talked about sacred singleness. Sacred singleness. Uh, just a quick recap. Last week, we uh, looked at the question that is posed, uh, or we looked at the question of, um, does a single person... Uh, or is a single person incomplete without a significant other or spouse? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. And so we looked at whether or not that meant that singles were uh, incomplete until they, or if they, uh, come to find someone else? And the answer to that question was absolutely not. A person being single um, does not mean that they are incomplete. And a person cannot complete another person. We talked about how a person may compliment you, but even that needs to be nuanced some because people change and you feel like if they compliment you or not, may change. A person may compliment you, but they can never complete you. We also looked at this idea of singleness being a gift. It really is a gift. Just like marriage, singleness is a good thing. It's a good thing. But in looking at it as a gift, we tore down this notion that 
it means that some people have been given this supernatural ability to be single, whereas other singles have not. And we kind of reframed the idea of gifts by looking at how when Paul talks about a gift, he normally speaking of a state of living that is given by God for the purpose of building other people up. And so last week's sermon was a call for singles to see uh, their singleness as something that is good and to use this period of their life, this time in their life, to build up others and to worship Jesus with undivided attention. But last week's sermon also, we focused on this notion of a family. And a big part of focus on this notion of the church being family is to say that Uh, singles in our church need to have um, a a place within the body of Christ where they know that they are are welcomed and valued. I received a email this week from one of our single uh, persons who really um, sent me a a message that was encouraging, but it continued to remind me um, of our need as a church to make sure that this is becoming a case. This person wrote, the de-idolization piece in your sermon was powerful. I was telling my friend that I felt a pocket of oxygen for a few minutes during the sermon. It felt like I, I am actually honored in this space for being single and not in spite of being single, which is crazy. Because affirmed for being single and in spite are two different things. And honestly, and we honestly don't even feel like we got the second, get the second one regularly, let alone the first. And so the goal of last week's sermon was to help us as a body to make sure that we are valuing the whole body and tearing down these misconceptions that are frankly unbiblical and making sure that we are not contributing to a singles um, in our church feeling like somehow they are incomplete because they are not married. We want to continue to de-idolize marriage. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into today's sermon. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness and kindness towards us. I pray, Father God, that you would just um, allow your Holy Spirit to take control of our hearts and our minds as the word goes forth. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. You know, John Stott has a great quote, and in his quote, Um, He is acknowledging this tension of a person who is single um, and who desires uh, to be married. And his quote points out the fact that um, this is a a period of discerning that a person has to go through. He writes, I have no doubt that there are some people who believe God has called them to be celibate and to commit themselves to celibacy for the rest of their lives. Personally, I have real hesitations about the wisdom of that because I'm not convinced that people know say, in their early 20s, that God has called them to that. I personally believe more in the second alternative, that people discover God's call gradually. And as the years pass, they begin to think that God is probably calling them not to marry. And I think that that's an important point because we have uh, some who are single here who desire to be married, and you're trying to discern um, whether or not God has called me to be married. And some who are single here who are um, older and single and have desired this for a long time. 
And I kind of want to use this sermon today to, to speak to those uh, who desire to be married and who find themselves in, in a place of desiring and, and longing, um, but who, um, who aren't sure if the Lord is going to provide and, and meet that desire. My hope is to give us a framework to, to hold that, to discern, but also to simultaneously encourage those who desire to be married and who are maybe pursuing someone um, to date with the hopes of marriage. And the way in which we're going to, to do that is by looking at, at five principles, five principles that I want you to remember as you as you walk out your singleness. My goal is that you would, um, in this time, recognize that singleness is good, but that you would remain saved, sane, and sanctified in the process. Amen. Somebody say, oh, glory be to God. Amen. (laughs) Saved, sane, and sanctified. So these five principles that we're going to go through, um, again, is is meant specifically to encourage uh, our single brothers and sisters. And as those who are married, I pray that you would embrace these principles too and apply them to your own lives because I believe that they can impact you not only as you're married and in your marriage, but also impact the way that you um, comfort and show up with your single brothers and sisters. These five principles are going to be this, five things I want you to remember. First, is remembers God's character. Second, remember you were created with a purpose. Third, remember to temper longings for marriage with a realistic and balanced perspective. Fourth, remember to embrace God's word as the pathway to joy. And fifth, to remember to reject cynicism. Remember to reject cynicism. Now, if you're a visitor and you just joined us today, normally we do what's called expository preaching, where we just dive into a text verse by verse. We read, explain, and we apply it. Today is going to be a little different. It's building off of what we had last week and what we looked at in Genesis 2, uh, uh, 7 through uh, uh, 15. Yeah, 7 through 15. And today what we're going to be looking at specifically is just some principles that we, uh, uh, that we want to look at now that that foundation is laid. Amen. And so these five things I want you to look at is the first is to remember God's character, to remember God's character. The Bible teaches that God is holy and perfect with no character flaws whatsoever. If we were able to peel back the heart of God layer by layer, as we peel back each layer, the only thing that we would get is absolute perfection, goodness, beauty, and truth. There is no blemish in God. And as my single brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the the character of God towards you is always good. God knows you intimately. He loves you unimaginably. He provides for you faithfully. He forgives you thoroughly. He's compassionate towards you daily. And he is an immutable God. He doesn't change. 
He knows you intimately. Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. Write those verses down and remind yourself that God knows you intimately. God loves you unimaginably. 1 John 3, 1a, see what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. God's love towards you is great. God provides for you faithfully. Matthew 7 and 11 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God gives good gifts, and he knows what good gifts each of us need individually. God forgives you thoroughly. Psalm 103, verse 12, he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah chapter 118 says, though your sins are scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. And we know that this is possible, this cleansing is possible because of the finished work of Jesus. First John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. God is compassionate towards you daily. Even if you struggle and you have what we call those kitchen floor moments last week, those moments when you are on the floor desiring companionship, desiring romantic love. God is not in heaven upset that you are on the kitchen floor aching and and mourning and, and poor of spirit because you desire that, but rather he looks at you in those moments with compassion The Holy Spirit indwelling you is mediating the presence of Jesus at that moment, calling you blessed. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the Bible teaches that, 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 that God does not change. These things are always true of them. James 1, 17, God never changes or casts a shifting shadow. The first principle that I want you to remember as we lay down some, some deeper, some, some other principles in order for you to be able to hold them is, is God's character. Remember his character. But second, remember you were created with a purpose. The Westminster Catechism, first study question says, what is the purpose of man? And the answer is absolutely fantastic. The purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And for my Piperites, it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Purpose of man, whether married or, or single, is to live our lives to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, if you're married, if you're single, 
if you desire to be married and you're single, if you don't desire to be married and you're single, you do it all to the glory of God. And the Revelations 4.11 says, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 reminds us that we were created with a purpose when Paul says, for we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, his poema created in Christ Jesus. We were saved, transferred from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of life in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works was God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. This God who is full of perfect character is also a God who has designed and foreordained, foreordained you to do good works. Your life is not a mistake. It's not by accident. Where you are in your life at this point in your life is not a surprise by God. God has created you and fashioned you, and this perfect, holy God has intended for your life to go on the course that it is on. And he wants you to trust his character, to trust where you are, to surrender where you are to him, to glorify him with where you are so that you may do the good works that he has set out for you. And trusting God means that we surrender our lives to him in such a way that we say, Lord, I believe that if I knew all that you knew, and if my heart was as perfect as your heart, you would want for my life what uh, I would want for my life, what you have given. Just as God created Adam and Eve with a specific purpose that was unique to them, to keep the garden, to name animals, to be the first to multiply through procreation, God has specific good works that he has called you to. You discern those good works as you consecrate yourself, Romans 12, 12. As you live before him as a living sacrifice, he makes more and more clear what his will for your life is. The first principle is to remember the character of God. The second is to remember the purpose of man. The third, now we're going to get into the nitty gritty. I want to give you these next three principles to, to help you where you are in, merit, uh, in singleness if you are desiring to be married. The third is this, to remember to temper longings for marriage with a realistic and balanced perspective. Those who are single and who long to be married, hear me when I say this. Temper your longings for marriage with realistic and balanced perspectives. Married couples, our job is to know our single brothers and sisters in Christ, to sit with them, to weep with them, and to, to pray for them, and to, to relate to them in such a way that they understand marriage not from the perspective of Facebook or Instagram, but from the perspective of brothers and sisters in Christ who are, are married and in the thick of it. Y'all know on, on Facebook and, you know, we 
I mean, Instagram, you have all these ha hashtags, right? Hashtag vacation. Well, they need to know about the hashtag vaccination arguments that y'all get into. They, they need to know about the, the struggles. Yes, that date night dinner looks good. But can you let them know about the 30-minute argument that ended in one of y'all cussing at the other because you couldn't pick a place to? Don't do it. <laughs> Amen. That's right. Make a listen. Y'all take turns. Do something. Too many marriages are on the rocks because they couldn't decide where to eat. It is healthy to go into marriage and to, to see marriage as not this perfect, blissful institution that is always enjoyable, but to see that it is hard work. And singles, you have to remind yourself that even when you get married, that things don't become easier. In many ways, they become more complicated. And this isn't to scare you away from marriage, but this is to help you to temper those longings. And I believe some of us, marriage has become an idol because we're not looking at it realistically. We're only looking at the Facebook post and the Instagram post and this fake world that people create to only show their good moments. And you don't see that even though it's good, holy, and beautiful, that it's just as hard, if not as more difficult than being single. Now, we have to show. We have to, with wisdom, tell. Marriage is difficult because many times spouses have different expectations and desires when it comes to, to sexual intimacy. Spouses handle conflict differently. Spouses want to approach vacations and what you do on vacation differently. What one person finds restful, the other person finds tiring. I'm not even going to touch on in-laws. I got great in-laws, by the way. <laughs> hey, mom, hey, dad. Uh, <laughs> sleep patterns. Where you squeeze the toothpaste from. Standards of home keeping. The way we communicate. The way we handle finances. And that's not even to, to mention just all the other things that go into just a single person. People are complicated beings, and you're taking two complicated beings who were living their life in swaying, and then they get together, and they're like, oh, you're so cute. You're so cute, too. Oh, you know the Bible. You know the Bible, too. Oh, we got some mutual friends. Let's get married. And then you get married, and it's just conflict. <laughs> I kind of missed the will of the Lord somehow. <laughs> and the reason why is because people as individuals have a heart, a human heart. A heart that Jeremiah 17, 9 says is deceitful among all, above all things. Above everything, it is deceitful. Jesus said, from the heart flow the issues of life. Every issue we have, it flows from the heart. The heart is our control center. It's a sum of who we are, experiences in our life. That's why the proverb says that we need to guard our heart most diligently above all things. 
But not only do we have this heart and, 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 and this sum of, of who we are, we also each are physically embodied people. And our bodies, because of the fall, are imperfect. And if your hope is that when you get married, that your, your body's going to stay the same or your spouse's body's going to be the same body that they had when they were younger, and if your hope is in that, or if your hope is in you all, all living this fruitful life that is always moving and, and always happy, then you don't understand the reality of the fall because bodies decay. Disease happens. Depression comes. Shapes change. Not only are we physically embodied, but we're socially embedded. When you commit to someone and to marry them and to, to, to be with them for the rest of their life, they, they've got a suitcase behind them. And when you're dating, you see a part of the suitcase. You're like walking from here and you see it out the peripheral. When you get married, you're like, oh. And then you start opening it and you start getting deep in there. You're like, hold on now. Pretty sure this is over the 50-pound limit. And you're like, oh, this is just the first one. Excuse me, Bell Hopkins, you are... And you're like, well, I'm glad you got multiple ones too. I do too. Let me pull mine out. <laughs> and then we're spiritually embattled. There's a real enemy that is trying to tear at, at each of us. And he comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he hates marriage. His first attack on humanity didn't come, temptation didn't come until there was a marriage union. And then you add all that in, and there's this thing called God's providence where God is working all these things, suitcases, experiences, trauma, joys, pain, personality, and he, he tailor allows and tailor makes storms for it for each individual person to conform them to the image of Christ. And that comes through going through the fire, through, through suffering, through pain. And so when two people get together to be married, when two sinners, in the words of Dave Harvey, say, I do, yes, it's beautiful, and yes, there can be romance, but it also requires hard, hard work. And hard work is hard work. And all I'm saying is, so if your longings for marriage is just for this romantic Instagram, fall picture, Christmas morning celebration, good, long for it. But understand that in between all of those high moments are some dark valleys. Some dark valleys. Fourth, remember to embrace God's word as a pathway to joy. Remember to embrace God's word as the pathway to joy. Genesis 2, we see that God gives two commands. The first is to eat, to eat and to enjoy the trees of the garden. The second is to avoid eating from the tree of good and evil. And you know the story. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent convinces Adam and Eve to reject being humanized. 
and to long for being God-sized or to reach for. He casts doubt on the character of God with them. And being deceived, they rebelled and they ate. They ate thinking that their path was the true pathway to joy, was the true pathway to life. But as God said, it actually was the pathway to death. And that old slithering snake of a serpent does the same thing and each of us day by day constantly wants us to doubt the character and the goodness of God because if God was really good, he would have made sure this didn't happen. If God was really good, he would give me what I want when I want. If God was really good, my wish list and my fantasy list would have come true. If God was really good, he would have changed this person. But we want to constantly remind ourselves that we live in a fallen world and that God is good. And how do we know that God is good? Because he did not spare his own son for us. He allowed his son to sit under the full weight and amount of his wrath, his innocent perfect, eternal son who is filled with unblemished character and love for all creation bore the weight of your millions of sins in both thought and deed, and he allowed it to crush his son so that you could have not only abundant life, but eternal life, so that the next trillion years of life would be spent in perfect Peace without guilt, fear, or shame. So I want to give two, really quickly, two examples of embracing God's word as the pathway of joy. And these are two temptations that I see and I talk to as I talk to singles quite, quite often. And, and the first encouragement I want to give to you as you embrace the word of God, is to commit only to date disciples of Jesus. For some of you who are single and who've been single for a while, you're like, man, I just, for whatever reason, I don't attract the attention of Christian men or Christian women. It's hard out here. You understand what I'm saying, player? <laughs> but new nuke and baby, man, they be on it. They <laughs> cat calls and everything, right? All right, let me bring it back to Louisville. That's my Chicago style coming out. And you're like, I, you know what? I can change him. I can change her. Ain't nothing wrong with a little thug, right? Right? It's going to be the safe version of Tupac. We're going to work it out. We call that missionary day. Well, the only problem with that is it's a pretty big problem. That's that God explicitly tells us in his word to not do that. Now, have there been cases where it's worked out? Yes. But I'm sure with each of those cases, it was some unnecessary sin and some unnecessary pain and some unnecessary scars. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul writes, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
Or what fellowship has light to do with darkness? Paul's admission here is to is part of a larger discourse where he is discouraging Christians from going into intimate partnerships with non-believers. The story is told of a man who went to the airport and he ran into a, a really pretty young lady. They start talking, chopping it up, and, and all of a sudden, things just, the sparks just begin to fly. Now, the young lady was headed to New Mexico and he was headed to, to Canada, but he Sensing that something special was happening, I was like, hey, I got, a, I got an idea. Got an idea. Let's get on the same plane. And even though we're going to different destinations, let's just see if we end up at our different destinations, even though we're on the same plane. And obviously, <laughs> when he got off the plane, he was in New Mexico and not Canada. Why? Because you can't travel together to a mutual destination when one person is going up and the other is going down. Stank face. (laughs) Hashtag hello lights. Hashtag let's let that sink in. Hashtag too many hashtags. When a Christian begins to date a person who does not treasure Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they both are on two different pathways. One is on a pathway that says, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. One is on a pathway that says, I am seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all these things will be added. One is on a pathway that says, I am committing to pick up my cross daily and to follow him. And the other is on a pathway that says something else. It says that all will work out in the end. There's there's one God, but many paths. It says at the end of our life, we're just going to be annihilated or we're just going to die and that's it. But those two pathways are going in two different directions. I want to talk to my younger Christians here who are, who are single high school students. Listen to me. It's going to be a great temptation to do some missionary dating or even to date someone who says they're a Christian, but to them, that doesn't mean what it means to you. That doesn't mean laying down your life to receive greater life. I want you to imagine that you date this person because they're cute. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. (laughs) They're not following Jesus, and you get married. And on Sunday, you're going to church, and you're coming back because God has spoken to you. And when you come home, that person is indifferent. I want you to imagine what that's going to do to you because the most important part of you, the the part that the person that you treasure the most, that you're crazy about the most, the person that you wake up talking to, that you go lay down at night praying to, when you share it with your partner, they 
are unmoved or maybe curious or inquisitive. But imagine that it's worse than that. Imagine that it begins to annoy them. So now you're in a covenant relationship with someone who's going to be habitually annoyed when you bring up the best part of you. When you bring up that this man died for you, he placed his life in his father's hand and he was willing to be crucified so that you can have life and you're met. And so, yeah, it meets a temporary longing. But it's a broken sister that can't last and hold water. So don't put your hope and don't desire to be married just to be married. There are plenty of married people who, who look back and say, man, I wish we had done things differently because, man, we're miserable because we did not embrace God's way that leads to joy. But also just real quick, I want to talk about this idea that Tim Keller calls comprehensive attractiveness versus what I'm just going to call cuteness. Some of us, we have a real hard time pursuing people because our standards for the people we want to date is shallow. And ungodly and unfair. And I want to challenge you to pray to the Lord. I think attraction is important, physical attraction. I think, think that is important. But I'm just saying, comprehensive attractiveness in the long haul of things is more attractive than cuteness. Because as I said earlier, we're all physically embodied and cuteness wears off. That's my wife. She married me. She's like, oh, you're so cute three years later. She's like, babe, what about that membership to the gym? <laughs> I'm just joking. She never said that. Well, I'm just joking. Right? But our bodies change. And if we are basing something on something, and there are plenty of people who are able to keep, that's great. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? Some of us wouldn't date Jesus if he was incarnate in 2021. Jesus was incarnate. I'm not being, it's not heresy. He's not. But if he was to come in 2021, we'll have a problem with him. Because the Bible says in Isaiah that Jesus was not very attractive to look upon. His outward appearance wasn't all that great. Could you imagine Jesus pursuing you if you're single, ladies? And he's trying to talk to you, and you're looking, and you're like, nah, boo. That ain't it. <laughs> and he's like, wait, I'm telling you, but the reception. We're going to save so much money, I could take two fish and five loaves and just feed everybody. <laughs> you're like, nah, but that ain't it. Like, but I'm telling you, medical care? Boom, you got a headache? Instead of a hospital visit? Save you $5,000. In the name of Jesus, be healed. Nah, boo, that ain't it comprehensive attractiveness, full of love, patience, peace, gentleness, and kindness, going to treat you well. And you still talk about, well, I like a little thug in there. <laughs> but let Satan show up. Looking good, smelling good. Mm-hmm. That's what Ezekiel, some people say it's a kind of foreshadow, a picture of, of, of Satan, but this, this king of Tyree who's said to have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, yet 
got cast out of the presence of God for being a hot mess. And some of us will marry Satan because he got bling bling, say the right thing. Shallows all get out when it comes to Christ and him crucified. Say, he's a Christian, what's your favorite verse? I like all of them. <laughs> you like all of them? All of them are powerful. Then you wake up on a honeymoon and he's red with horns. Because you didn't get to know his character. And one of the ways that happens is, which brings us to our second point, is we oftentimes we let things get too passionate too quickly. And we're embodied people, emotional people, sexual people, and God has created us, spiritual people. God has created us with these things to steward so that we can become dependent upon him. We take our sexuality, we, we take our spirituality, Spiritual questions are yearning. We, we take our physical pains and we, we bring them all to him. Independence and we grow in him. We get to know him. We learn to depend on him and to trust in him. But what ends up happening, as I talked about last week, what ends up happening is, is rather than find our identity in Christ and find our substance in him, our peace in him, our joy in him, our sonship and, 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 and our, this relationship with the triune God, we begin to pull from other people. We live as if we need them to think that we're significant or to agree with us or to, um, to affirm our dignity. It's good things. Those are all good desires. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. So you get two people that's pulling, trying to fulfill this hole in their heart that only God can fulfill. And then what's happening? What's happening is it's a tug of war. Or what happens is two people get so into each other so quickly, they're infatuated with each other, but they don't really know each other. They don't know the, the, the baggage that's behind them. And oftentimes what happens because we're emotional, spiritual, and physical beings is, is we're tempted to get physical with the person because we want to feel in us and we want to feel this, this sense of oneness or completion with someone. And we do this prematurely, and that ends up clouding everything about that person. It ends up clouding ourselves. It ends up clouding the way we're relating to God. And sometimes we take that infatuation and we get married when we should not get married because we've clouded everything. Or we don't really get to know that person before we get married, and then we get married and we're mad at each other because we didn't see the luggage that we were carrying. Lauren Winter says this, when we are in love with someone, we often appear to attend to our beliefs when in fact we are doing the very opposite. Instead of being attentive, we are acquisitive. We use the other for our own glorification. We bask in the presence of our beloved because we enjoy the image of ourselves that is reflected back. This is the opposite of Christian love. The opposite is all about me. Even idolizing my beloved, certainly a danger for the newly infatuated, is all about me. Though it pretends to be all about the other, it is all about me because it does not take my beloved seriously as a person created and redeemed by God, but rather imagines him to be perfect, heroic, sublime, 
and customizes. And so we end up getting into these, these relationships and we're calling this thing love when really it's just infatuation because we're going to them to find completion rather than going to the Lord. And then we end up angry at God because that relationship didn't work. And it's not just, well, let me share this. Richard Foster says that sex is like a river. It is a good and wonderful blessing when it's kept within its proper channels. But that's just not, it's not just about sex. Though that is important. 1 Corinthians 6.20, God says, remember you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And God has told us to, to pursue purity until we marry because he does not want us to be traumatized and re-traumatized by this very intimate act over and over without having someone in covenant with you. And that's what's dangerous about cohabitation, right? You get intimate with someone, you move in, you, you're not in covenant with them, and you see the very, you see all the luggage before there is commitment. And cohabitation, by the way, study after study shows them, living with someone before you're married is a sure way to end up not married. God knows what he's doing when he created marriage and when he created order. He's like, no one's, very few people are going to commit to each other in the covenant of marriage after they unpack all of their baggage. He's like, I'm trying to help all y'all. But this, this going and getting passionate too quickly also deals with emotionally as well as spiritually. What I'm saying is when you date someone, get to know them, spend time with them. Yes, go on dates, but, but do it in an atmosphere that, yes, maybe where you, yes, fun is important, but also Asking good questions is important. Seeing what this person is truly about is important. Meeting this person's community so that you can learn about this person is important. And not allowing passion to just take over. This is my fifth and final point. Thank you all for y'all's patience. And I just want to give a shout out to our tech team. You guys are awesome. I'm just jumping around in my text and Christina is on it. Thank you. You guys are really amazing. Last point, so I want to encourage you to remember to reject cynicism. Remember to reject cynicism. So a couple of weeks ago, um, we had a Harbor Network church planning conference here. A lot of guests, a lot of visitors had the joy of taking uh, some of our speakers out to dinner. And one of our speakers had a shirt that I thought was just cool. It just said, simply said, Good men do exist. I compliment them. Man, that's a dope shirt. I like it. It's like, thanks. It's like, cool. <laughs> and so we're leaving and uh, dinner and this lady comes up. She was, I mean, she was, she was a sweet lady, presumably single, mid-40s. And she was like, excuse me, excuse me. And she kind of chases down. She's like, that's a nice shirt. And he's like, thanks. And she was like, I just wish it was true. 
She was like, in fact, when y'all find a good brother, send him my way. But when she said it, we both can sense that, man, there was some pain there. There was some story there. She was hurting. And I just sense, and in conversations through the years with some of our singles who desire to be married and, and, and maybe you're getting a little older, I just, one, I just want to say I'm sorry. Um, I know what it's like to want something and to long for it and to not have it. Every single human being has a deep desire, something that they wish were true that's not. And I just want to say I'm sorry. I also just want to encourage you to, to fight, to not allow your heart to become callous as a result of your experiences to the point that you just give up hope that you can be married and that you start seeing everyone through the experience of those who hurt you. Because what happens then is then we don't, we're not good stewards of, of our life. Like when a person becomes callous, this is just my observation, like they start presenting themselves differently. Maybe, it's, maybe they stop stewarding their, their time, their resources, their, their body, but their presentation of themselves, it just, seems, it just seems off. And what ends up happening is you actually begin to work against yourself. The cynicism kind of seeps out. And even if there was a person who wanted to pursue you because of the way that you present yourself, it could be that they, that they are no longer interested. But also, as a Christian, we have every reason to fight cynicism because we serve a God who is a good God, a God who writes our stories, a God who may appear to be late, but he's never late. He's always right on time. A God who is able to provide for you a person to live this life with if it's his will. So I want to encourage you to reject cynicism by cultivating a heart that says, my God is able. And even if he doesn't, I will trust him. And those words aren't my words. Those are words that are found in the book of Daniel, the story of the three Hebrew boys who refused to, to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And as they are being met with the alternative to bow or to face the fi this fiery furnace, they say to the king, O king, our God is able to deliver us from this furnace, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. See, we won't bow because we've heard stories about this king, we, about our God. We won't bow because we've heard how he can split open the Red Sea. We won't bow because we know that he provides manna in a wilderness. We won't bow because we've heard stories about him providing a child for someone who's 90 plus years old. We won't bow because if he doesn't save us from the fire, it's not because he can't. Ah, it's because he's got another plan. What's, what's that longing? What's that it? Married or single that you just want, want so bad that it's kind of corrupting the way you see this, 
perfectly complete God. What, what is it? And I just want you to know that God sees you in your longing. He sees you in your desires. And he's not condemning you. He's not angry at you. He is full of compassion towards you. And he wants you to see that whatever time you have left is packed with potential and power and purpose. And he's not done with you yet. And if he hasn't provided it, to you is not because he's not good, it's not because he's not able, but it's because he has another plan for you. And that one day, whatever that pain or that ache or that longing is that you feel like you're missing or missing out, you're going to see his face and you're going to conclude, ah, if I were you, I would have made the same decision that you made for my life. Truly, you are worthy. Truly, you are holy. Truly, you are beautiful. One day when you look at the scars of Jesus, which will be the only scars in heaven, you'll say it all makes sense in light of, in light of, in light of your glory. How do you reject cynicism? You reject cynicism by holding on to the good news of the gospel. That every right will be wronged. Every disappointment will be overly fulfilled. And the person of Jesus, that every ache will be healed. Every cancer will be taken away. Every sickled cell will be made whole. And you fight it by holding on to community. By inviting your brothers and sisters into those longings to listen. To hold your hand. To point you to an empty tomb. I was talking to a sister this week who pointed me to this reality. She said, she had become cynical, had given up on love and hope and finding someone. And, and no, she's still single. She hasn't met that person. But she said her perspective changed one day as she's reading Revelations 19 and 7. She realized that I may not be married now, but one day I will be. Revelations 19 and 7. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. So one day I will experience that preparation. I will experience that banquet hall. I will experience that walking down the aisle moment. She said, in reading that verse, I realized that God, in light of eternity, never disappoints. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.